great to see everybody here and it's great to be here to praise the Lord today. Just a quick note about that particular song that was written back in the in the days when we couldn't meet at church. It was written because um, Phil Wickham was longing for that fellowship and it, I think about the, when we first came back. I remember how good it was to see people again. So um, let's rejoice today that we get to we get to fellowship. We get to worship our Lord today. Um, a few, a few themes kind of emerged for our music this morning, and I, as we worship the Lord, I'm sure you'll pick up on them, but I just want to read a couple of verses. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And then uh, that's from Ephesians 1, and then Colossians 1 says, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why don't you stand and, and uh, sing this song with us as we praise our Savior. Lord, we praise you. Lord, our, our hearts are, are full this morning, uh, just reflecting on what you've done for us. Uh, may, we, may our hearts be open to your word this morning, and may we um, continue to worship you as we go about our, our week this week. We pray now for your, your message to be proclaimed. Pray for our pastor to speak your words, and we thank you for the chance to, to be here to, uh, to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want to thank you, praise team, for uh, leading us this morning and before the Lord. It's good to have you here this morning. If you're worshiping with us, if you're here for the very first time, I would just invite you in the, on the bulletin uh, there is an extra flap on the bulletin. I don't know how else to describe it, okay? It's just an extra uh, addition on the bulletin there. If you would take some time and fill that out, and then uh, no way to discreetly do it, but just rip it off there. There is a box on the welcome table out there, and if you would just put that in the box as your offering, that'd be great. That's all we'd ask you to uh, put in the offering this morning. We're just glad that you're worshiping with us here this morning. There are very few announcements. The ones that are uh, of importance to you are in the bulletin, uh, except for, I would like to remind you that today's the last day for the gift for the Mbiambios. Uh, they just had their fourth baby. Uh, Eric and Anj uh, had welcomed uh, little uh, Ezra into the world, so we're very grateful for that. If you want to give to that, that's information's out there on a the table in the entryway. The second thing is I would just like to ask our church family, some of you know, some of you don't, that uh, Lauren Krim's mother passed away just uh, recently. We knew that she wasn't doing well, but she just passed away. So the family's grieving. They've uh, been with them and they're exhausted. And so just keep them in your prayers if you would. And I would just like to pray right now. So would you bow with me as we pray? Father in heaven, we come before you, the King of Kings, the Lord of glory, and we are encouraged and inspired to sing of the redemption and the salvation and the resurrection that is 
available through our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we just come uh, with joy in our hearts and gladness. But we also know that some are sad and some are grieving and some are hurting. And I, I know that there are a lot of people in various states of joy and celebration and sadness. And I just want to come before you to remember a few. And I will not get them all. But Lord, I want to pray first of all for our sister Mary in Haiti and ask that you would continue to bless and enrich and encourage her efforts. We pray for physical safety and protection. We ask that you would just allow her to speak freely and for her to really be able to dispel and disperse some very valuable information that will be helpful for the physical and spiritual well-being of those that she's caring for. We pray for Lauren and her husband Alan and their family and her siblings and her father as they mourn the loss of her mom. I pray that you would surround them with your grace, that you would comfort them and encourage them in very special ways. And Lord, we thank you that you you care and we know that you will provide for them. I pray now, Father, as we continue to worship you through the study of your word, that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to each of us as you know we need spoken to, that your word would be received for what it is, the word of God and not the word of men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, took my folks to Arizona, and my dad wanted to go golfing, or he thought I wanted to go golfing, and so we went golfing. I went golfing for the first time that I'd been golfing in like three years, okay? So I got up to the tee box, you know, and I uh, did a little stretching because I thought, you know, I'm really old, and I uh, probably don't work in the same way that I used to at least three years ago, and so I took a few practice swings, got up, approached the ball, and my tee shot went dribbling right off the tee box. Uh, I want a do-over. So my dad threw me another ball, and I teed it up, and I hit that ball, and uh, do-over in golf is called a mulligan, and uh, there were several mulligans for me in that round, but uh, that was the first one, and I got, I got going. And this morning, as we come to a passage of scripture, it's, 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 a, it's a do-over if you will, of the Lord's Passover. Because for centuries, the the Jewish people had been celebrating this feast that was associated with God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. And then the the Lord comes on the scene and at at his last Passover, the Lord's last Passover, he didn't ask for a do-over. He accomplished a do-over, okay? It wasn't because he, he didn't improve the venue and he didn't improve on the menu at the Passover. What he did was he reinvested, he invested the elements of the Passover with new meaning so that it was applied to his mission and what he had come to accomplish for people. And he was instituting the Lord's Supper as a replacement for what had been traditionally observed as the Passover. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26, or if you have a phone or a device, or you want to reach under the seat in front of you, somewhere close, there should be a Bible there. Matthew chapter 26, um, we're going to read verses 17 through 30, and then I'm going to share with you, as it says in your bulletin on the outline, it says, in in, in Jesus' final Passover, there, he makes three instructions, or makes three declarations that inform us of the mission that he has and also inspire us to take action and so i'll read the text beginning with verse 17 now on the first day of unleavened bread 
the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now verse 18. And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered and he said, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. And he said to him, You said it yourself. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Notice he didn't say, Drink all of it from you. He said, Drink uh, from it, all of you. So it was a common cup. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the, this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is going to be crucified very shortly. And here we see him making these declarations that expose for us his mission, what he's all about. We've been moving along through the book of Matthew and always moving towards the crescendo of the cross. And we're getting close. And so we see, first of all, in verses 17 through 19, in Passover preparation, our, our Lord affirms his, that his mission is determined. And by that I mean it's going to happen. It's set from eternity past that this is what God is about to do. Verse 17, the first day of unleavened bread. It refers to the first day of an eight-day celebration that the Hebrew people, the Jewish people uh, celebrated, began on the 14th day of the month. Uh, most scholars think that was probably a Thursday. And so Thursday was the night in which it's traditionally believed that they had this last Passover meal. And the, that began, the first day of the celebration began with the celebration of the Passover on that, on that night, which is what Jesus is about to do. And both celebrations commemorate the deliverance of the people of Israel from bondage, slavery in Egypt. This is Exodus chapter, chapters 12 through 14. Okay, So that's what's going on. We celebrate in America the 4th of July. That's our celebration of our deliverance from tyranny from Britain. They celebrated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt through these, through these festivals. And so the, there, there are three steps in the preparation, I think, that confirm that Jesus' mission was determined and set, set in stone. It was part of God's plan. So the disciples make an inquiry. Uh, now, verse 17, now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare for you the Passover? 
Well, that was important about where, because uh, Jerusalem was crowded. <laughs> they were kind of itinerant people. So where are we going to do it? There's a busy time, you know, we, we don't know where it's going to happen. Uh, some of you have been through this, some of you will be through this. But at graduation time, if you want to have a party, and you want to go someplace to eat, or you want to reserve a venue, or as uh, we, our second daughter, our first daughter, actually our middle child, is going to be married. And it's like, well, where do you have a venue? You can't wait until the day before the, or a week before the wedding and say, oh yeah, I'd like to have my wedding there and expect that it's going to happen. No, you have to plan. So Jesus was making plans. And with sovereign authority, then, Jesus makes, gives an instruction to their request. So he instructs two disciples. doesn't say that in this text. But if you go to uh, John, or Luke chapter 22, you see that it was Peter and John that he instructed, go and make preparations. In the city there'll be a certain man, and who's this certain man whom Mark and Luke and their parallel accounts uh, declare would meet you carrying a pitcher of water? Well, that would identify the man probably because most men didn't carry pitchers of water. The women carried the pitchers of water. So as you see a guy carrying a pitcher of water, oh, that must be the guy. So they would know who it, who it would be. And he would easily be identified this way. And then they were to tell him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. This is verse 18. To keep the my time is at hand. I must keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, what does it mean? My time is at hand. It means that the time of the Messiah to be delivered up, to be mocked and ridiculed and scorned and made fun of and beaten and bruised, crucified, buried, and rise again. This is the time. My time is at hand. In John chapter 13, uh, verse 1, uh, Jesus said this. Now before the feast, it says this. Now John said this. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, we need to keep, I think, this in mind as we read through the text. My time is at hand. So what does Jesus know that he's, he's told the disciples it's coming. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, he's, he said, I must be delivered up and to, by the chief priests and the scribes and be crucified, but they didn't get it. He knows what's coming. His time is at hand. The hour is near. When he will be crucified, he will be rejected by his Father. And he will carry the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders. My time is at hand. The time had arrived for the Messiah to offer himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. In Romans chapter 5 verse 18, Apostle Paul says, So then, as through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind. Adam and Eve sinned. Condemnation to all mankind. So also, through one act of righteousness... The crucifixion of Christ. The result was justification of life to all mankind. It's not universalism. <laughs> not everybody's saved. But the possibility is there okay, for, for salvation. So this was, he means, the times at hand. Jesus' celebration of the last Passover says, I am to keep this Passover with his disciples. It wasn't merely something he just desired to do. 
And that's, I think, we need to keep in mind. And he did desire to do it. Luke 22 says he desired earnestly to keep this Passover with his disciples. But it wasn't just something he desired to do. It was something the Father had planned for him to do. It was determined that this would happen. This was the plan of salvation for for mankind. It was part of God's redemptive plan. And Jesus' surrender to God's plan makes possible our redemption. Remember back in, uh, when uh, he was wandering in the wilderness and Satan says, oh, hey, you know, here's some bread. Just, you know, you can eat stones. You can just make them into bread. You can eat something. Oh, hey, look, see all the world, all the, all the kingdoms of the world? All you have to do is worship me, Satan said, and you can, you can own all this stuff. Oh, here's a, a pinnacle of the temple. You just jump off here and, you know, God said his angels, he'd give his angels charge over you and he'd, they'd take care of you. And Jesus said each time, his, well, he didn't say this, but my interpretation of this, his love for the Father was greater than his commitment to any of these other things. And so he rebuked Satan using scripture, but it was out of his love for his Father. He said, no, I'm going to the cross. Had he capitulated, had he given in each one, any one of those cases, you and I would be toast. It was his love for his father and for us that kept him on this path. And his redemption, his, his, his death is, makes possible our redemption. Which means that we should repent and be saved. That's the response. Or else just greatly rejoice in, in what, what he's done. Rejoicing. Paul said it, and I've said it before, I've quoted it before. He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin on him. His righteousness on us. That we could be redeemed. That's the marvel of the gospel. And then the disciples implemented in in verse 19. Okay, they went out and did what he said. Now what's really interesting in the parallel passages is they find everything exactly as Jesus had said it would be. Oh, there's a guy. Yeah, he's carrying a pitcher. Yeah, we need to go to our house. Yep, he's got the upper room is prepared. All that's all in place. And I think this is another demonstration of God's determination that this is going to happen. Jesus knew all that. And he followed their instruction. And then during the meal, which we don't have here, but John 13 through 17 takes place in the midst of all this. The upper room discourse where Jesus is talking to his disciples, all of his teaching, the last last sermons of Jesus are in John 13 through 17, which take place during, during the Lord's Supper. And so in Passover preparation, the Lord affirms this mission is determined by God. Secondly, we see that in the Passover, now your version I think says in Passover revelation, I want to scratch it and say in Passover participation, both are true. But in Passover participation, our Lord announces that his mission is difficult. Verse 20. Now when evening had come, so sometime probably after 6 o'clock, which is when evening was, that's the start of the next day, this was the Passover feast would happen. He was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. When evening had come, sometime after 6, Jesus was there with the disciples and they were going to celebrate the Passover. And interestingly enough, if some of you remember, but if you don't, that's fine. You go back to Exodus chapter 12, 
what were they instructed to do? You're supposed to gather in your house, slaughter the lamb, and you're supposed to stand around and you're supposed to eat this and you're supposed to eat unleavened bread because you're getting ready to leave. You know, make haste. So it was formerly a, teach, a, a time when they stood around and ate standing up. Now they're, they're lying. Reclining means they were laying down, you know, with their feet out. And it was a... a a, a formal meal. They only sat down for informal meals. This was a formal meal, so they were reclining at the table. Uh, so maybe somebody should have informed Michelangelo. Uh, 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 they weren't sitting at a table. Uh, they were lying around at a table, okay? But this was the, the feast of the Passover. But earlier on, what we don't see here is the dynamics that took place is that the disciples had been disputing about which one of them is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God, right? Oh, Peter and John, or James and John, sons of thunder, it's like, hey, one, one mommy comes and, you know, these are my boys. And one sit on the right, one sit on the left. And do you know what you're asking? Oh, yeah, we, we can suffer. We can drink that cup. And then the other disciples are ticked off because they got there first. Oh, yeah, well, we would have asked, but, you know, we, they beat us to the punch. And Jesus rebukes them. This is what the, the, Lord, the rulers of this age fight about who's, who's best and who's first. So he has a verbal, there was this verbal rebuke. But now, during the Passover, we don't see it here, but in John's Gospel, actually in, in, verse, in chapter 12, we see Jesus gives a visual rebuke. Because what does Jesus do during the Passover? He gets up from the meal. He goes over. He wraps a towel around him. He takes a basin of water and he goes around and he washes each of the disciples' feet in an act of abject humility because it was the most denigrating task of any slave to wash the feet of others. And so here we have Jesus' visual rebuke to these people who were his self his selfless service was a slap in the face to their selfish arrogance oh can i be first can i be first can i be first no i will show you what it means to be first i will wash your feet and i will care for you he assumed his place at the table as they were eating and he told his associates all of his closest people the disciples that were there what he faced on the way to the cross the first obstacle on the way to the cross was the defection of one of his closest associates, one of, the, one of the disciples. And he makes four statements here that emphasize the difficulty of that defection as he faced it at this time. First of all, he announces, who the betrayer, announces a betrayer is among them in verses 21 and 22. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now think about the statement. Truly means certain, absolute, no question asked. This is his divine authority being exercised right here. But there's also divine knowledge, omniscience, right? Omniscience. How did he know somebody was going to betray him? Judas didn't tell him. The other disciples didn't know. So divine omniscience, divine authority, and absolute certainty, it's going to happen. I don't know about you, but I got this notice from Mid-American Energy. Oh, energy costs this winter are going to go up like 90%. Well, guess what? I've been paying my bills. 
they have gone up, right? It was a certain deal. What, what, what they said was going to happen, happened. It's a solemn promise Jesus makes. Truly I say to you, with guaranteed results, he emphatically predicted that there's a betrayer among them, turned what was it supposed to be a joyous celebration? Oh, what's a downer? One of you is a traitor, he says. One of you. Turned it into a sad, sad occasion, right? Now, here's, here's the sad part to think about. It. This is one of his own hand-picked disciples. Somebody who has been with Jesus, hearing his sermons, watching him perform miracles, eating meals with him, and associating with the other apostles, the other disciples. These are all people. And if you eat a meal with someone, that's like your, your communion. You're, you're part of the family. This is who you are. And now he says, one of you is going to betray me. It's the worst type of villainy. The worst type of, of, of horrendous villainy. And David captures it in Psalm 55, verses, verses 12 to 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could endure it. Nor it is one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But as you, a man of my equal, my companion, and my confidant... We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God among the commotion. Now, not every one of us has experienced this. I don't know that I could say that I've ever experienced this kind of betrayal. Some of you have. And you know the devastation that that would cause. And so here Jesus is in the middle of it. And the disciples are sad. The text says they're deeply grieved, verse 22. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, now, I don't know if I would have done that, right? Surely it's not I, Lord. It's like, because they, they're so clueless. Like, it's not me, is it? It's not me. They, they thought, oh, couldn't be me. They began to talk among themselves. And John tells us in his uh, gospel in chapter 13, verse 22, they were at a loss to know which one of them was, which one he was speaking of which one they were speaking. They didn't know. Here's a lesson for us, I think. Sadly, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really possible to be in such close proximity of Jesus or of religious things that we actually don't know that we aren't really one of his followers. That we can be hostile in our hearts. It's a sobering reminder, I think, of our human frailty. Here's Judas, been with Jesus. He's a betrayer. We can grow up in the church, we can be all around religious stuff and be a Judas. Don't be a Judas. Don't just sit in church and soak it up and then be so distant from God. Think about this. What's going to happen in the, in, in, as we go on? It's not the Judases that are going to be the ones who are denying Jesus. It's not the, the, the Judas who's going to be the ones falling asleep when Jesus is praying. It's not Judas who, well, it was Judas, I guess, because all of them deserted him then in, after the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to see that as we go on. These people were human beings. They had frailties. But the question is, where am I in all that? Would I be there? Would I be the one? Don't be fooled. Jesus knows exactly what's in our heart. You're sitting here this morning. You're listening online. God knows what's in your heart. 
don't be an enemy of Jesus. And here's the thing. He went to the cross for the likes of these, the likes of us. Because we're fickle, we're frail, as I heard Chuck Swindoll say at once, fickle, frail, and apt to fail. That's me. And the, the Lord went to the cross for us. That's the message. Then secondly, he emphasizes that the betrayer is among us. Verse 23, as if it wasn't enough to say, yeah, there's a betrayer among us. <laughs> Verse 23, and he answered, he said, uh, they, they said, surely not I. And he answered and said, he who dips his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Now, that's kind of foreign language to me. It's like, dips his hand in the bowl? What's all that about? You know, well, I, they, they had a bowl, evidently, and they, they kind of went around dipping their bread in the bowl and, and eating out of the bowl. Well, you know, it's like, if you have soup and you have bread, you know, what do you do with the bread sometimes? I don't, maybe everybody doesn't do this. I do this. I eat soup. You know, dip it in the bowl and have a little soup, you know, a little chili and dip it in the bowl and have a little chili. Well, so you have a big bowl of chili and everybody's dipping in the bowl. The thing was, this really didn't help them much because everyone did it. All it did was narrow it down to emphasize the fact that it's one of you. It's one of us right here. They still didn't have it clarified, but they knew that one of them would be the betrayer. It would dip them with them in the bowl. Then he articulates the punishment. He doesn't, hasn't identified anybody yet, but in verse 24, he says this, Then the Son, of Man, the Son of Man is to go, just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The Son of Man. Remember this phrase. It's the it's a designation, Jesus' favorite designation for himself. He is the Son of Man, which draws from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and following, identifying him as the divine Messiah King. He is the Messianic King, promised in the Old Testament who will reign forever. He is the Son of Man, is to go. Now, stop here. He is to go, just as it is written of him. He is to go to the cross. Just as it has been written of him, where? In the Old Testament. Such places as Psalm 16, verses 8 and following. Such places as Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. And many other places. The betrayal leading to the crucifixion wasn't an accident as it has been written of him. The ultimate Passover lamb. It was part of God's plan, the sacrifice for him, for our redemption, for our salvation. And mysteriously, since it's part of God's plan, you think, okay, if you're thinking, maybe you're not lost, I've lost you here, but if you're thinking, well, if it's part of God's plan, then, you know, you can't really fault the people part of it, right? Oh, yes, you can. Because mysteriously, the people responsible for carrying out God's plan are held accountable. Okay, I want you to look, if you can, at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man delivered over, that's Jesus, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, didn't catch God off guard, oh, this is plan B, no, this is plan A, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And Jesus says, you're accountable. For putting him to death. 
Jesus made it clear in John 17 that he, Judas is the son of perdition. <laughs> okay? He was held responsible. The text says, woe to that man. Verse 24, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe announces that's impending doom. Judas is not in glory, okay? Whatever that phrase means, it would have been better for him not to have been born. He's not, he's not in glory. It's a, it's a terrifying thing. It's like this. The, it, it announces impending doom. It's a sober reminder to all of us who may be rebellious or religious but not right with God, that as the author of Hebrews says, who go on sinning willfully, that they're reminded of a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and severe punishment if we trample underfoot the Son of God. You think about it. Judas had a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes? I mean ate with him, drank with him, talked with him, a personal relationship with Jesus. And he's in hell. So don't be fooled. And I'm not saying if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, your, your eternal destiny is in question. What I am saying is that it's possible to be very religious, possible to be very understanding of and very intimately aware of the truths about Jesus, but not have a personal faith-based relationship with Jesus that secures your salvation. That was the case for Judas. Don't let us presume that our religious privileges equates with being right with God. Just because we went to church, just because we even prayed a prayer, doesn't mean that we have a right relationship with God. It's what's a matter of in our heart. Words don't matter. It's what's in our heart. We should be asking with the disciples, surely not I, Lord. Lastly, we see he identifies the betrayer. Judas takes... Uh, his obligatory turn, right? They're all going around. Well, it's kind of peer pressure. Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. So what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, I'll take a pass. No, it's, surely not I, Lord. And Jesus says, uh, yeah, well, you, you said it. You're the guy. He'd later identify him more clearly in John chapter 13, verse 26. We don't have to look at that one, Adam. But uh, so, so my, my takeaway in this is a couple of things. I could be like Judas. It's possible for us to be religious and not in a right relationship with God. Secondly, is that the, the gut-wrenching disappointment of that knowledge did not deter Jesus from the cross. Think about the first gut punch for Jesus. I'm going to the cross. Oh yeah, by the way, one of you is going to turn me over to these people. But I'm still going. I'm still going. And I think about that. I think Jesus went to the cross for his Father to demonstrate the Father's righteousness. He went to the cross for us. For me, he died. For me, he lives. Everlasting light and life he freely gives. The author of Hebrews put it well. It strikes me in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 says this, in the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devout behavior. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. 
Do you understand that as a follower of Jesus, we learn obedience? Obedient. What does it mean to be obedient to Jesus in the midst of the suffering when our obedience requires agony? I don't want to do this, Lord. I don't want to be the only one in my family who follows Jesus and have them reject me and, 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 and make fun of me and mock me and scorn me. I don't want to be the only one in my office who says, I'm a follower of Jesus and I will not capitulate to this mandate, this requirement, this regulation that violates my conscience and my God. I will not be the only one, I don't want to be the only one in my country who says, I follow Jesus, I will obey him rather than you. I don't want to be that child who still has to obey my mom and dad even when I don't want to do what they ask me to do. But out of obedience to the Lord, I have to obey even when it means I can't stay up past 11 o'clock and do my thing on my device. You think you're going to die. You won't. You know? I don't be the only one who sticks it out in the marriage, when it's flying in my face that I should run. I learned obedience to the things that he suffered. And if you haven't had to suffer in obedience yet, you will, or you'll bail. He learned obedience, and he did it for you, and he did it for me, and he did it for his father. Finally, in Passover instruction, our Lord applies his mission directly to us. Judas was probably gone now. I mean, Judas left right away after Jesus identified him, right? He had to go out and do his dastardly deed, so he left and he's gone. And uh, while they're eating, John MacArthur puts this this way. He says, Jesus turned the Passover of the old covenant into the Lord's Supper of the new covenant. The Passover of the old into the Lord's Supper of the new. From this moment forward, the deliverance of the children of Israel in Egypt, celebrated by the Passover, is gone, and the deliverance of sinners from their sin through the blood of Christ is here. That's a celebration. It's a Passover do-over. When Jesus said, take the bread, <laughs> he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, instructing, drink from it, all, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said that in verse 28. He's not advocating cannibalism. I just state that because some people get confused. I mean, figurative language taken literally. Okay? <laughs> Figurative language taken literally. He actually meant they should take the cup and the bread, but he didn't mean that you're actually eating it. I mean, he's sitting there for Pete's sake. So how can he mean that you're supposed to... I mean, he's still alive at the time. So he can't mean that. You understand that he's, he's, he's investing the normal elements of the Passover meal with brand new significance. It's not just about a, a, a cup of wine. It's not just about bread, unleavened bread that you're eating. No, the unleavened bread represents his body, and you know this. Sacrificed for our salvation, his, the wine represents his blood. 
that would shed for the forgiveness of sin. So his substitute, so in the same way that in the Old Testament they took that spotless lamb and they slaughtered it and they spread the blood over the, in front of the door and over the doorpost so that the firstborn sons inside would be spared their lives. In the same way the blood of Christ the perfect blood of Christ was shed so that all who would put their faith and trust in him would be sheltered and saved from spiritual separation from God forever. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, for Christ, our, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. That's the end of verse 7, okay? Our sacrifice has been sacrificed for us. Sacrificed for us. What does that mean? It means in our place. He's our substitute. You know, we don't often think about that. I mean, how many of you have ever seen a lamb slaughtered? How many have ever seen anything slaughtered? It's not pretty. Christ our Passover, sacrificed, slaughtered for us. Come and let us join the feast. Our substitute, his sacrifice. So think about this. His sacrifice, in his sacrifice, Jesus Christ became the substance of which the Passover lamb in the Old Testament was the shadow. So you take the substance of Jesus dying on the cross, cast the shadow on, and is the lamb in the Passover sacrifice of the Old Testament. He becomes that, 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 that sacrifice. So that he declares the permanent forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, and the death of, of death in, in his love for us. So all who believe. And he enacted a better covenant. Hebrews says he becomes the... Uh, the Guarantee of a better covenant. Hebrews chapter yeah, 8, 8, 9. For finding fault with the people, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will bring about a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them from the hand uh, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care about them, says the Lord. It's a new covenant. You say, well, I don't know, a new contract, a new agreement. It's kind of nebulous terminology, but the, the covenant at Sinai was sealed. In, back in Exodus chapter 24, they slaughtered animals and they sealed it with the blood and they sprinkled the blood on the people to show that they were forgiven and also to demonstrate that God was their covenant God and he was committed. In the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven and God was demonstrating his commitment to us. You're one of my people. I'm with you. The new covenant embodies and fulfills and surpasses the old, providing eternal forgiveness. The the old covenant wasn't about forgiveness necessarily. It was about deliverance. It was a picture. Now we have deliverance from sin. And Jesus said, or or Paul, the writer of Hebrews said it, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. New covenant, law comes within us. The the law of God is written on our heart, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31 uh, 33, not only is the law within us, but verse 34, which I don't have on the screen, says, and your sins I will remember no more. I'll remember no more. Christ has become our Passover lamb. That's 
That's the thing. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 tells us that the, the blood of Christ is more efficient, more sufficient. It takes, it's better, okay? You can have the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the spring of the heaven defied with the sanctifying cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What do we call the Passover now? Communion. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. The Lord applied his mission to us. In this Passover meal, he said, it's for you. It's for the Father. So you realize that what I'm about to do, I'm making a symbol now at that meal of what's going to transpire in a few hours when I hang from a cross and my blood is actually shed and my body is actually broken so that you could be forgiven of your sins. That we as undeserving, he would die for us who deserve to die in our place so that we might live. We don't deserve it. Substitutionary atonement. A substitute. When we think of the cross, we think that should be me. But it's not. All praise to God. Who reigns above. And realize that the elements of communion, the bread and the cup, they symbolize his death on the cross to secure our pardon and to seal our eternal destiny. It's not just about forgiveness now. It's about future glory. Okay, It is forgiveness now. It is future glory, but it's not just about either one. It's about both. So here's my call. Repent and believe. For you, he died. For you, he lives. Everlasting light and life, he freely gives. Have you received it? Have you accepted what Jesus did for you? Have you realized that I do not deserve it? It's really amazing how the first service, we, I mean, it's like I, was, I, I could almost keep, couldn't keep my mouth shut because we're, we're talking about these very same things. You know? He died for me. Repent. If you have never repented and believed, you are Judas. Okay. Don't end there. And for those of us who know Jesus, you know, two things. Remember and rejoice. Okay. Verses 29 and 30. It says in verse 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Remember. Remember in communion that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't that strange? Let me, sorry, leading the witness. Um, it seems strange to me that of all the commands, the Lord would say, remember I died. Really? That's kind of like abrasive. He died. Yeah, we proclaim. We don't just, we proclaim the Lord's death. Why? Because the death of Christ is the foundation of our faith. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. First service, we said, well, communion, and this is not a rebuke, okay? Communion is not about the gospel. Oh, if it's not about the gospel, it's about nothing. 
They're intricately and intimately connected. Because you read the end of the book, in Revelation 22, he says, Come, come, all you who are without life, and receive the living water. Isn't that fascinating? At the end of the book of Revelation, God is still reaching out and inviting people to come and receive life. He is the most gracious and compassionate and loving Heavenly Father, reaching out always. So we remember, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And it is a sobering and saddening reality that we are the ones who put Him on the cross. His sacrifice that He made for the debt we owe to secure a pardon we do not deserve. And rejoice. Why do we rejoice? We rejoice in this. Because in his death, we can be forgiven. There is life only in Christ. There is life only in Christ. Why do we celebrate Memorial Day? It's a sober day when we remember those who gave their lives for us. Why do we celebrate birthdays? Because we're glad that the person is alive and they're there. We celebrate communion for, as Memorial Day and as a birthday because of the benefits. The first benefit is that we receive forgiveness in Jesus. But that's not where it ends. That's not where it ends. Christ's death we celebrate because in it we gain forgiveness, but also because believers rejoice in it because we gain eternal fellowship. With the Father. What does he say here? I will not celebrate this again until I celebrate with you when? Okay, let's read it. Verse 29. I, will, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's coming a day when we're all going to gather around with the Lamb and with all of the redeemed at that marriage feast the lamb that, that John tells us about in Revelation 19, and we're going to have a party. And we're going to celebrate and drink the wine and eat the bread forever and ever and ever and ever. And that is reason to rejoice. That's reason to rejoice. So when they sang a hymn and went out, think about that. Jesus sang a hymn on his way to the cross. And I just have a gut feeling that the disciples were clueless. They were doing the thing they'd always done, the Halil, Psalm 113 to 118. That was their hymn, you know, that was their hymn book. And so they were singing the Halil and going out. And we have an even greater reason to rejoice because we have forgiveness in Christ. We have eternal fellowship and eternal forgiveness in Christ. And that's why we, that's why we sing. We, the, the cross is the focal point because I'll borrow a phrase because in the cross is the death of death and the death of Christ. We win. We win. There's no better deal than that. And so here I, I, I say, if you don't know Jesus, then I, I, I invite you and call you to sincere repentance. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He's the only way. We proclaim his death because only in his death can you live. And I live. We proclaim his death. I, I, I ask you, as, and we're about to take the elements, I want you to take some time for sober reflection. For me, he died. 
It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And then rejoice. Steady rejoicing. All the time, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. They sang a hymn and went out. When we leave this place, we better be singing. Because we have life in Christ. And there is no other life. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, prepare our hearts, and I pray that every child of God who is a believer, who's trusting in Christ, would anticipate this Lord's Supper. That you would give us pause to soberly reflect on what it cost you so that we could live, so that we could have life eternal. I, I pray that you would bring joy to our hearts to know that we are undeserving people for whom you paid our debt. I pray, dear Father, that those who don't know Jesus would repent and believe so that they could be welcomed into your family and know that forever forgiveness and forever fellowship. I pray in Jesus' name. Have a blessed week.